From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. This week, we're getting the latest on the war in Ukraine with journalist Maria Romanenko. She left the country on the first day of the invasion, and she's telling us the process of crossing multiple borders to get into the UK, where she is now. She'll tell us how President Zelensky was elected in 2019 and why she'll return to Ukraine when it's safe to do so. Also, freelance journalist Mircha Barbu tells us the latest from inside the Ukrainian city, Chernitsvi. It's Wednesday, March 30th, 2022, and this is News Nerds. To get more on what it was like to cross multiple borders to get out of Ukraine, we're going to journalist Maria Romanenko. I recorded my interview with Maria on Sunday of this week. Maria Romanenko is a Ukrainian journalist. She she went to the UK in the beginning of the invasion, and she's joining us now. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Ezra. So you got out, as you were just telling me, on February 24th. How did you get out of Ukraine? Because I've been talking to other journalists who got out similarly and went to the UK, but it was really hard for them, and it took a lot a lot of time to just even cross the border. Yes, yes. For me, it wasn't a quick and easy process. So just to give the, the whole perspective first, before I go into details, uh, we started going out of Kiev, started sort of, you know, we left uh, out the outskirts of Kiev on the 25th, uh, 24th of February. So just within hours of the first bombs being dropped uh, on Ukraine. And I got into the UK on March the 2nd. So that's basically more than a week later. So, and uh, between that time, uh, first, when, you know, when we woke up to those uh, horrible news of the bombings all across Ukraine, um, my boyfriend, because he is British, he was like, we need to get out of the country. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be looking to um, escape Ukraine because all my family is there. Um, you know, I love Ukraine. I never, never even thought of leaving it, you know, under any circumstances. I would have probably tried to go somewhere remote and stay there while the situation uh, is like this and go back to Kiev to my home as soon as possible. But because he was so adamant uh, that he wants to go um, to get out, uh, he was worried, you know, it's not, he was not only caught up in the war, but he was caught up in a war uh, in a country that he doesn't have attachment to. So we started going to uh, sort of moving towards the West. Uh, my dad kindly drove us to Lviv. Normally it takes, um, about five six hours by car but because of the traffic because of the queues at the petrol stations um, it took us 10 hours to get there and it was a very long journey and then we arrived there in the evening in the evening of february 24th um, it was a very weird atmosphere in Viva at that point it almost felt like a ghost town because um a lot of cafes were closed um, because they were worried about the payment systems. Not many people were out. Uh, all the news, all the TV screens were like about uh, the war. And um, But we stayed there for four hours. We got some food at first and then we went to my boyfriend's friend's friend who lives um, nearby in Lviv and um, got four hours of sleep. Like, well, in my case, it was like three hours of sleep and my boyfriend, I think, got like one hour. And at 4 a.m., we, um, my, uh, my boyfriend's friend agreed to drive us to the border. And normally that takes just over an hour, but it took us six hours by car to get to the pedestrian border because um, 
as soon as we got to this like point, like 19 kilometers away from the border, the traffic just stood still and you probably would be moving like one meter in an hour or even less, maybe even like 50 centimeters every hour. And it was just not moving anywhere. So what we had to do, we kind of tried to do a detour, basically like drive around this uh, traffic and we tried to do it in separate, several points, but the, the border guards kept, you know, telling us to go somewhere else because they're not going to let us through. And then at the last point, uh, they want to turn us around as well and tell us to go back to the end of the queue. But they checked our documents. And as I said, my boyfriend is from England, so he's got a UK passport and his friend is from Northern Ireland. So he's also got a UK passport. So when he saw the two UK passports, he was like, well, you know, normally I'd tell you to go back, but because the UK has been so great in helping Ukraine in this situation, um, I'm going to let you through here. And that was like a miracle for us because it saved us probably days. I don't know how long it take us to others because it was just, as I said, you know, it was just a queue that, that was not moving anywhere. So we were able to get to the actual pedestrian border. The friend dropped us off. He was not planning to leave. Um, so we joined the pedestrian queue, the pedestrian border. And it was a joyous moment at first because, you know, you kind of feel the lead to like, well, you know, it's like the last stage. Um, nearly sort of there but um hours sort of went by and again the, the queue wasn't really moving and uh, lots of people started queue jumping um and we ended up at this like front of the queue we weren't even sure what we were queuing for as in like you couldn't really see the the you know the beginning of the queue and how long the process would be to actually cross so when we got to the front we we're basically in this like fenced area. The, the only way to really describe it is like it's like a cage basically because there's like a metal fence and you can't really see much. But when, you, when we got closer, we saw that there's uh, two small doors through which the border guards um, let people through. But they only were letting through maybe one person every couple of minutes. And there were thousands of us in there and it just felt absolutely unsafe because... Uh, even though it's outside because there's so many people if you can just imagine like the worst kind of concert where you can't really put your arms down and can't really move it just you know you just get out of air out of fresh air and you just can't breathe I was in this area for 10 hours and my boyfriend was in there for 12 hours the only reason I was there for a shorter time because I started feeling absolutely unwell and I was just like I just need to go through I just need to get through I just kind of followed some other people who were pushing through and because it was quite obvious that it turned very pale people were you know all right with me sort of pushing through um but many people were fainting there people were falling ill apparently somebody died as as was told to me by uh, somebody who was uh, in the queue with me she said that the border soldier told her that you know he was carrying out a guy and uh, he told her that he was dead um, so it was just an absolutely unsafe environment because also in such a crowd and when there's so much crashing and pushing, um, you can't really eat or have much water and there were no facilities to buy water or buy food. But even if you could, you, you can't go to the bathroom. There was a bathroom in the initial stage. Uh, but as soon as you leave this crowd, like you have to understand, you can't really get back in because people start shouting at you that, you know, that you... They won't remember that you were here five minutes ago. Yeah, and that was just only the first stage, and that took us, well, 10 hours. Yeah, how did you get into the UK? So I think my way was quite unconventional because uh, 
none of the it just kind of happened that all these things um sort of aligned for me to be able to um enter the uk i applied for a visitor visa in the early february uh, before you know before i knew anything like this would happen um you know i've got lots of friends here because i studied in the uk um before so i have friends here my best friend lives in manchester um, my boyfriend uh, my partner is in uh, manchester so I kind of had lots of visitor visas at uh, different stages of my life. Um, and I applied for another visitor visa in February. Normally it takes two, two and a half weeks to get a visitor visa. But um, because they've been very, very slow recently, it was three weeks had passed at that point and I still hadn't heard about my visa uh, by the time, by, by late February when we were crossing the border. So it's when we got to Poland, we spent two nights in Krakow uh, and then we went to just resting and kind of recovering from what went on. And then we uh, went to Warsaw uh, where I stayed with my, uh, this guy from, from Poland who I met at university. And we, the first day we were there, we basically went to the British embassy in Warsaw um, and they wouldn't even talk to me because the British embassy, they only talked to British residents residence but my boyfriend uh, went to the uh, you know went to talk to them and explain the situation and they were kind of didn't really want to do much at first but at that point we already the media really covered our story a lot uh, you know the crossing the border before that we were on many many media organizations many media channels uh, newspapers uh, radio I as a journalist you know because because I talked to the press before some of them already knew me some of them saw me on another channel so they kind of all sort of started reaching out for comments and uh, car journey as we were going to leave um, I spent eight hours of ten hours uh, of that I spent on the phone or on, on the video chats to different journalists so because our story was so publicized and was so uh, everywhere in the media um, when we were at the embassy um, they journalists just like called us and uh, like asking what's going on you know how's my visa going and stuff like that and it just happened that on the same day, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, was um, visiting Warsaw as well. And we didn't know, so we were there. And then we saw that there's like extra security and we were just like, oh, what's going on? And then, you know, we were told that Boris Johnson is coming. So all these journalists um, who are ringing us, um, they kind of started ringing the embassy asking, uh, we just wanted to ask about Maria's visa and things like that and because of that pressure because they were getting calls from the journalists and um because of my my partner got the help of um the, his mp andrew Gwynn, um and all of them just kind of tried to do whatever you know it took like asking questions asking the home office what's going on so i managed to get in that way i managed to get a visa waiver which is basically something that doesn't really exist on paper or anywhere but it just exists in the system so a visa waiver is basically um you know you can see if you're uh, if you're part of the home office if you're the border um the border you know the 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 border control at the airport or if you uh, uh, you know Ryanair or like a, an airline you can you have access to that system but uh it's not like an email or it's not a letter that I can show to anybody so I got this visa waiver and it, it kind of further complicated things a little bit. So I was told that my visa was granted to me. So that's the thing. That's the reason I got this visa waiver, because they knew that my visa was granted to me. But because of the war, it was lost somewhere. We don't really know where it is. Probably it was sent back to Kiev uh, application center where I applied. But th that one is closed. So there's no access to it. And there's a war. And, you know, how do you get a document from town that 
is operating under very limited um, sort of, you know, in limited operation. Even if they sent it there, how would I get it back when I'm already out of the country? So for reasons that are not my fault, because, you know, it was just lost. We just, nobody knew where it was. Um, I don't have a physical copy of the visa, but I was told that it was granted to me, you know, when the home office workers go into the system, they can find that it's actually been granted to me. I have a six months visa, but I just don't have a paper about it. So they gave me this visa waiver, which also doesn't exist anywhere, just for one flight to get into the UK. So now I'm, technically I'm on a visa to visa, but if I try to leave the country, that's going to further complicate things because they'll spend hours like checking, making sure that I actually am allowed to be here. And when I fly back in, they'll be checking me again. So it's quite, yeah, my case, I would say is quite um, isolated and quite different probably to other people's cases. So basically, in short, you, you, you had to wait long periods of time near the Ukrainian border. Once you got into Poland, it was uh, kind of easier and you stayed in in some major cities in Poland. And then when you got to the UK, uh, they had they had basically misplaced your visa. I mean, you think that it got sent back to Kiev. Am I hearing that right? Uh, potentially. I think that's what we were told in one of the emails, that it was probably sent back to Kiev. I mean, I can't prove it, but it's it's nowhere. Nobody has it. That's the fact. <laughs> mm-hmm. That Yeah, I, I have the visa, but nobody knows where it is. Um, you you mentioned that you had uh, some some friends and family that are still in the country. That must be hard for you, knowing that they're still in a country that's now being attacked. Can you are you in touch with them, or is it really hard to keep in touch with people in the in the cities? Uh, I am in touch with them. Yes, so all my family is in Ukraine. Uh, my mom, my dad, my uh, brother, you know, my sister-in-law, my dog, <laughs> have uh, quite a few fr- friends or former colleagues that are still in Ukraine. Um, I, I, I am able to stay in touch with them. Uh, my phone operator here in the UK gave me free calls to Ukraine, so that helps uh, when I can't rely on the internet. I also have a 92-year-old grandmother who is in Ukraine, and she's bedridden, um, so and you know she can't use messengers or anything so uh having free calls really helps in order to for me to be able to call her so yeah i'm able to call them my dad has joined his territorial defense force um so he is fighting against the russians by you know these are like self self-organized uh defense groups that that basically uh protect the the area where they live and they get like this sort of rotors where they kind of each have times when they're supposed to be patrolling the streets with arms and make sure that you know there's nothing weird going on nothing suspicious and if there is deal with it accordingly so that's what my dad's doing Uh, my mom and my brother are staying together they're relatively safe apart from just hearing the sirens all the time and getting accustomed to that Uh, but it's been fairly all right where they are um there's been no bombings uh, over there. And yeah, the only thing is that just the physical and psychological stress of uh, hearing the sirens all the time. Um, I have further friends who are just like staying in Kiev where they normally live and have to spend a lot of time in bomb shelters. 
which is not fun as well as you can imagine. So I kind of, yeah, have a very good understanding of what's going on, on the ground because I stay in touch with everybody and, you know, I see what they post on, on social media. Um, so the, the, the world is kind of watching Vladimir Zelensky's videos on Twitter and, and they're, they're admiring his leadership. Um, and there's kind of an interesting backstory to, to him being elected as president of Ukraine. Uh, and it kind of stems from the show Servant of the People, which basically portrays him as a school teacher who eventually gets elected as, a, as the president of Ukraine. Uh, and I mean, that's not far from what actually happened in, in real life. He was a comedian and then he got elected as president. How did that happen? Uh, I don't think it's that easy to explain. I mean, I can sort of find ways to explain it, but it is a phenomenon for Ukraine. It's not like it happens every four years and, you know, it's easy to say, oh, this is how it happens in Ukraine. No, it's an absolutely unprecedented situation for Ukraine as well. Um, so there were like rumors, I think, going on for maybe weeks, maybe months before. So he announced his plans to run for presidency on uh, New Year's Eve 2019 now, I guess. My years have like mixed up but i think it was 90 yeah going from 2018 to internet 2019 and before that for weeks there was just some sort of rumors going on i can't even remember what they were based on that he would be running but it just seemed a bit you know for some people some people it seemed a bit of a joke because everybody sort of knows him as an actor slash comedian and then there was new year's eve and he suddenly comes up uh, with a new year's eve message and in ukraine new year's eve is like a big deal you know it's uh, because we come from the soviet union where religious holidays were uh, not allowed were banned um new year's eve became the new christmas for for ukrainians unfortunately um so we still have this thing where a new year's eve uh, president reads a, a message um, as opposed to sort of doing that on Christmas and uh, the one plus one channel which belongs to Ukrainian oligarch Igor Glomoisky who's a business partner of Zelensky so his servant of the people show and his uh, quartal 19 at five uh, shows were all screened on one plus one channel which is part of the media empire of Igor Glomoisky so uh, on that New Year's Eve instead of showing the Poroshenko's uh, speech, which is what all the channels would do. One plus one screened uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's speech all of a sudden, you know, just say an actor slash comedian suddenly gets airtime um, instead of uh, Petro Poroshenko, instead of our president. That was a bit weird. So he starts off, you know, by sort of his speech, like saying, uh, talking about Ukraine, wishing something to Ukrainians. And then like, I think in the end he says, like, I'm running for presidency. And uh, yeah, like the whole media space sort of exploded and just uh, started talking about this. Um, so that was a surprise for all of us. And weeks went by and, you know, just kind of by what he was doing, what he was saying, then he was getting more support. I think especially in the East where people were disappointed by some of the actions of the previous governments, he sort of managed to get a lot of support uh, everywhere in Ukraine, but especially in the East and the South. Um, which was a very, very interesting phenomenon again. And he managed to get the, the you know, the majority of votes and he managed to get the abs absolute majority in the parliament, which has never happened in Ukraine before. So, you know, he basically with his party alone, he can pass 
most uh, most laws, most uh, draft draft laws into laws, which is um, very interesting as well. Um, so I guess he's just kind of managed with his speeches, with his statements, unite uh, Ukraine um, and get the majority of votes, I think probably by focusing on internal politics rather than foreign politics, because we had you know, Poroshenko before, who was quite strong in foreign politics, but domestically, um, I think he wasn't that popular, or at least with his speeches, he wasn't concentrating domestic policies. Uh, but Zelensky did, and I think that's probably what had worked for him. We've been looking at maps of, you know, conflict in Ukraine, and we've been seeing a lot more conflict near Mariupol and in port cities kind of in the southeast of the country uh, near the Donbass region. What was happening in the Donbass region, which was a Russian um, separatist backed region that which had i mean there was a war going on there even before uh russia attacked the the rest of the country earlier this year yeah so uh they this event started uh early 2014 so we had uh, the revolution of dignity at the end of 2013 um end of november um people went to the streets because they were sick of our corrupt government who were not delivering on their promises, who were living in mansions whilst, uh, whilst you know, a lot of people were unjustly prosecuted. Various, and there was like a lot of development. And then the, the main thing, the main, the last straw was the fact that uh, the government promised uh, that the agreement with the European Union would be signed. And then last minute he said, that he, he won't sign it and he'll look towards Russia instead. So lots of people, thousands of people went to the streets. There was a very big revolution that eventually managed to oust uh, Viktor Yanukovych out of the country and he's still hiding in Russia. Um, and uh, after that, we had a, like a temporary government. Um, basically, we had an acting president as opposed to an actual president for some time. And because we had sort of not a very, we didn't have a very strong government because it was just building up, you know, it was just sort of in the, in the stage of building itself. And we were still sort of to see the, we were yet to see the presidential elections to elect an actual president. Um, Russia used that as an opportunity to grab a land that they believe for some reason belongs to them, which is Crimea, the peninsula. Um, and after that, uh, there started like weird things going on in some of the towns in the Donbass. And these weird things basically were like some people going to the streets with Russian flags or somebody climbing onto the governmental buildings and changing the Ukrainian flag for a Russian flag. And uh, it was all provocations, you know, it was all sort of really weird stuff. There was nothing like that going on before. And eventually these things sort of grew and there were like this more, more people were sort of gathering for, uh, you know, and doing these things and pro provoking um, a coup, basically. Um, it led to the establishment of this so-called uh, republics in, the, in Luhansk and in Donetsk. And for eight years, basically, um, the, you know, this grew into hostilities between the citizens and between Ukrainians and between this um, Russia that separatists, Russian proxies, and um, 
obviously we've seen many people dying, being killed. So for eight years, we've had a war that's been basically um, led by Russian proxies with Russian weapons, with Russian money. And in the battles, such as the Battle of uh, Ilovaisk, uh, there were actual Russian soldiers taking part. This has all been established by independent um, organizations, independent investigations. And then obviously we had MH17, where hundreds of people died, including lots of um, Dutch people. And that was uh, shot down from a Russian territory using a Russian uh, Russian missiles. Um, so, yeah, for eight years we had a war that was basically fueled by Russia. Um, but Russia started open aggression all over Ukraine on February twenty fourth this year. Uh, you you wrote a piece for Reader's Digest, and it's titled "I Fled Ukraine." Here's why why I'll definitely go back. And you talk about everyday life in in the city of Kiev, where you lived, and that really that really I mean, just give me a, gave me a picture of the city and what it looked like and how amazing it was. Explain uh, the the everyday life that you went through in Kiev and what the streets looked like and and the kind of uh, culture that was surrounding the city. Yeah, so Kiev is an ancient city well, from uh, the 5th century and it's a, uh, you know, it was established uh, by Vikings and it grew around um, trade and various commodities that Kiev had at that um, stage into the Kievan Rus. And we had the Christianization of, um, of the area um, in the 9th century and basically we, our culture and our language and all those things started growing around those area near the Dnipro river um, so basically Kiev itself has got very um, strong cult cultural significance and ukrainians have uh, existed you know since the ninth century for many many centuries uh, whether they were whether it's the cossacks who were um, establishing their own sort of fortresses in zaporizhia and other territories and you know the crimean tatars obviously were there for centuries as well, and the Cossacks and the Crimean Tatars kind of were um, allies in a lot of senses. Um, so basically, Ukraine's history just goes back to many, many centuries um, ago, contrary to what Putin is trying to portray, that Ukraine was created by Lenin in the 1920s. Really weird. <laughs> Everybody will know that that's not the, the case. Um, so Kiev is an amazing city. It's full of history. As I say, you know, Ukrainians are amazing people, very friendly, very warm, and very proud. Um, we basically, all we want to, all we want to do is to be, you know, to have our land, to have our uh, language, and we've, we've had that, we have that, and that's, somebody's trying to strip that away from us, strip that up, you know, take that away from us. Um, so, um, yeah, Kiev is a peaceful, nice city. We have a river uh, that goes um, between the two banks. We have the right bank, the left bank, and that's a very, very beautiful area. I used to go there for runs. I normally go there for runs, and it's uh, very nice there. We have a very good food culture, um, very amazing uh, food places, restaurants. Um, the area where I live in, Podil, that's full of bars and um, very good sort of nightlife in terms of more like bars and things, not like nightclubs. Um, beautiful city, uh, peaceful city, never really wanted 
to fight anybody. All we're just trying to do is just exist and go on with our lives. But for centuries, Russia is trying to take that away from us, as they did when they forced, forced us to join the Soviet Union in 1922, after five years of constantly um, trying to you know, achieve their means by like invading Kiev, invading Ukraine, and trying to make them join, trying to make Ukraine join the Soviet Union. And obviously we were invaded again in 2014. So Ukraine is amazing. You know, we not really, we never really want to fight anybody. We just want to go on with our lives and um, be as useful as we can for the country. And we love our country. Um, so we're fighting for it. We're fighting because we love Ukraine, but Russia is fighting because they hate Ukraine. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, and and I ho- really hope that you can go back. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ezra. That was Marie Romanenko. She is a journalist who fled Ukraine. She's now in the uh, the UK. If you listened to News Nerds a couple weeks back, you might have heard my interview with freelance journalist Mircha Barbu. Well, I got an update from Mircha, who is in Ukraine right now. He sent this to me late last Wednesday. I'm going to play this so you can kind of get a sense of what it's like in Ukraine from somebody who's actually on the ground there. Hi, good morning, Ezra. Just um, saw your message. I got it late last night my time. It's 7 o'clock here. Just woke up. I'm in a town called Chernivtsi by the Romanian border and um, the situation in Ukraine in one word is obviously disastrous. There's still a um, huge influx of um, people fleeing some of the besieged cities including east cities such as Mariupol, Odessa and other places, Kiev. Uh, A lot of people are still trying to get out of Kiev. Um, For the most part, I would say Western and Central Ukraine are still calm and quiet, but that can all change um, in a heartbeat. I've um, seen people struggling to have access to, to get access to to gas, to petrol, to fill up their cars. Uh, Some stores um, are closed. A lot of the stores that are not essential are are closed. Just got to... number that I think it's interesting. Um, 50 or 52 percent of businesses are open, which means half of the businesses have closed since the beginning of the war. So um, that's obviously not good for the economy, not good for people's jobs and so on. Um, The numbers at the borders are are slowly decreasing um, and that's for the last 72 hours. So people they're not leaving that doesn't mean they're not fleeing uh, what i think it's happening a lot of the people are not going for the border necessarily at the moment they're mostly internal displaced people idps as in they're fleeing um besieged cities but they're going to different cities westwards and in ukraine 
or some of the nearby villages to their hometowns, hoping they can return um, sooner than later. So that's something we've seen. Um, alarms are still going on um, and going off in different cities around the country. But for the most part, people are becoming complacent, I would say. I've, I've seen scenes with the alarm going off and people just minding their own business, walking on the street like nothing's happening. So I think both the international community, media, but Ukrainians uh, are becoming dangerously compliant with the war, as in it's becoming the new norm which is not a good thing. It's just, uh, that means perhaps that the uh, the community, the international community might start to ease off on the attention Ukraine receives. And people here might, might get used to the new reality and think it's somehow normal to, to be in a state like this. So yeah, that's the gist of it. Um, I think we're, we're in for a long, long conflict here. So, yeah, keep in touch. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. I was your host, Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other extras. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Another option is to listen to us every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM 95.9 FM, community radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you're not in the Gallatin Valley, you can go to their website, kgvm.org, to listen. Please support us through our Patreon and PayPal accounts. That's how we support this show, through donations from you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.